Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Thursday late morning, so there should be enough time for all the questions to get in, but let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on YouTube, Scotter140 said their best CRT is the Sony consumer-grade version that only has composite and S-video. Are there any recommended SCART to S-video converters? Also, they pre-ordered a Mr. Multi-System. Looks like there's a VGA to S-video for the Mr. at least. So, yes to all of those things, but I'd like to elaborate a bit. First and foremost, going from RGB to S-Video should be fine, and I don't think you would run into any problems. RGB to composite video is where you run into color issues, and that may be an unsolvable problem, uh, an unsolvable automatic solution for the problem. I'll get to that in a second. But just from uh, RGB to S-Video should be fine. Ashenworks makes a very feature-filled one that's a bit expensive, but if you need the extra features, totally cool. Uh, there's also one from LinuxBot 3000 that does the same thing, and I think LinuxBot also offers both DSUB and SCART inputs for that, so choose which one fits your setup better. Same signals, just different connectors on the end of it. And Mike Chi open-sourced one a while back that I tested, and same thing, works totally fine with S-Video, not so much with um, with Composite. I believe that one is a D-Sub VGA style input as well, though. So if you're looking for SCART, um, I think the Ashenworks and one of the two LinuxBot 3000s is the way to go. And I, I also, I like these because if you have something like a full G-SCART switch setup or two of them with a whole bunch of RGB consoles running through it, going to a scaler or a small RGB monitor, and you wanted to also hook up a really nice giant consumer grade TV, yours is 32 inch, so awesome size for light gun games and Sega 3D games and all of that stuff. If you wanted to do that, and in your situation it only has S-Video, then you would either need to unplug and replug cables every time you wanted to switch over, you wouldn't be able to have dual outputs. So having something like this means you could just take your existing setup that's all RGB, drop one of these converters in the middle and connect your S-Video consumer-grade CRT to it. And it still works with light gun games. Uh, pretty sure I put that picture up on social media. I'll try to link to all of that stuff in the description for you. So yes, the converters are available. Yes, they work well with S-Video. You just need to choose which one works for your setup. Now for the Mr., I don't have a Mr. Multisystem yet. However, uh, I do think you're right about that. And there are more options too. So this is the little case from uh, Ivory is the screen name they use. It's an AliExpress case, and this is not a clone or anything. Um, just because it's on AliExpress doesn't mean it's a clone, um, although there's tons of clones on there. This is a legit seller. They're trying to get these up for sale in the U.S. as well. Um, but it has one option for a Sega Saturn output. So if you're using your Mr. with a wide variety of devices like component video, VGA, um, any you know any kind of setup where a D-sub connector would be better, like direct into an RGB monitor, then the standard I.O. boards would probably be a better choice. However, if your only analog connections are something like RGB SCART and S-Video, 
these are perfect because all you need is a standard Sega Saturn cable for either. Um, S-Video works fine on these. Composite Video will have the same exact problem that all the rest do. However, this is a new prototype case with a potentiometer here that it's not super practical because it's not automatic, hence what I was alluding to before. But if you were to do something like fire up the Sega Genesis core and the 240p test suite and select the color bars, you could use the composite video Sega Saturn cable and tweak that potentiometer until the colors looked right. So that would mean that technically speaking, you'd get really great composite video out of the mister. You would just have to do it for each core, and each time you switched cores, you would have to recalibrate. Which, depending on the cores, like if you're talking about Super Nintendo and, and Genesis, both of which have the 240p test suite, that's super easy and, and worthwhile. But if you're bouncing between 10 different cores and arcade boards and things that don't always have color bar patterns, it's going to be a little trickier. So uh, we're a bunch of us are looking into ways to get composite video from the Mister, from uh, all of these original consoles in our, you know, originating from RGB for all the reasons we just discussed. But it's a little harder than you'd think. And in some ways, you might have to convert it to digital first and then back to analog, which wouldn't then probably not work with light gun games and stuff like that. So it's kind of a bit of a struggle, but composite video needs a lot more love because there's so many cases like yours where you just have a TV that has composite and you just want to start playing your game and be done with it. So, um I mean, other than that, I guess if you were looking for composite, you might be able to try other devices that have conversion, but who knows if those had any latency, if they'd work with video games, etc. But I wanted to give kind of a, um, a more detailed answer than just answering your specific question, uh, Scotter, because I know there's a lot of people that always ask this stuff, and I wanted to make sure I was clear in the answer. Uh, so there's more information than you needed, but hopefully that, that got you what you wanted. Now over on Patreon, a couple of things from Lily Larceny. First, they wanted to comment about Retro Music Dan's question regarding PS3 and Xbox 360 systems. And since a lot of those games are only rendered in 720p and then scaled to 1080p from the console, any kind of scaler like the Pixel FX Morph or the OSSC Pro that could output 1440p should be able to line double that. And right off the bat, they should be able to do nearest neighbor line doubling, which means if you have any of those games that are retro style shmups or something like that, um, you could get the sharp scale to 1440p, which would then make the end result of being scaled to like a 4K TV uh, a little bit sharper than the original. However, both of those scalers should hopefully have more options so that you could decide exactly how you want it scaled. And something like... Um, you know, something like the M cable that is specifically designed to smooth out from 720 to 1440, uh, I would hope that uh, something is possible in those scalers. The M cable supposedly should be able to do that as well, but I don't really have the greatest luck with that thing. Um, it would be really awesome if somebody just did a very detailed guide as to what's needed, but I think it's a combination of your HDMI EDID needs to say that it supports 1440p, and uh, I, I don't know, that thing's confusing, but um, something that, that works like that would also be interesting because you could smooth around the edges of 3D games as you're scaling it in a different kind of way than your TV would to hopefully have what kind of is faked into a higher resolution look to it. So yeah, I totally agree that 
um, those consoles, even with their HDMI outs, have potential to have some really awesome scaling done. Uh, but that's not quite here yet. So I'll circle back around to that when those scalers are officially released. Uh, second question, regarding Gord Captain's question about the surround sound on Wii and GameCube, do I know if the Wii Duel or GC Duel picks up that surround sound and passes it over HDMI as 5.1 or if it's just sent to stereo? Uh, that is a very good question. Um, I don't know... I don't know the answer to that, and I also don't know if that's something that would be dedicated by any of the customizations from Dan, or if it would be something that Ingo, the creator of the GC Video Project, would have had to have implemented. But that's a good question for Ingo over on Chmups for the, the GC Video thread. But that's a, that's a good question. I just I have no clue what the answer is to it. But it would be very nice if somehow the surround sound settings were already built into that, so you could just send a flag to your receiver, like, hey, it's surround. Um, Quantum Guitar did chime in that it might not be possible to activate this without Dolby licensing, but I feel like I feel like there's ways around this. There's got to be some ways to just send a flag that says, you know, this device might not be Dolby licensed, but the music that was on the soundtrack is, so, so play it. But I'm kind of talking out of my ass on that one. I'm just really speculating. So good questions, um, and hopefully we can get a clarification on the surround sound for GC Video. Pascal Kuner wanted to follow up on our discussion from last week about using a bunch of TFT LCD monitors to display classic consoles, and Pascal seemed to think that the GBS control solution worked uh, would work for them, but there's a few more steps that I forgot to address in the process, and the biggest one would be how to get SCART into a modded GBS 8200 board, and there's a couple of ways around that. Um, depending on how you're doing the project and how you want to build these, you could use something like the GBS Control All-in-One, which is the uh, kits that were built a while back that are now completely open source. So you could have your own kits made. Um, if you wanted to make 10, you could just have 10 boards made, hand assemble them yourself or whatever else you needed. And that includes a SCART to VGA conversion with the circuits all in there. Now, because you're making 10 of them, I don't know if that's if that's the best option for you because that's just a lot of soldering, a lot of parts to make. It's certainly the, you know, a very nice solution, but what you might want to look into instead is as you suggested, just building a basic SCART to VGA cable. And all you would need to do is get SCART receptacles from AliExpress or from uh from Console 5 and then any shielded VGA cable, get like a shorter one in length and just cut it in half. So nothing gets wasted because you're using both halves. But then you could wire all of that together. RGB matches, put C-Sync to pin 13, whatever horizontal sync is, the one in the bottom middle of the VGA pin, and then break out audio for use for like PC speakers or something and try it out. You know, build one and try it on, I believe you said you had 10 different consoles you wanted to set up. So just make sure it works on all of them with your GBS control. And if it does, that's it. It's a super cheap solution. It's a bit time consuming, but the 10th one that you wire would go a lot faster than the first because you kind of get into the groove of things. Um, but if it doesn't work, or if you don't want to build that, you can get any devices like the Sync Strike, the Sync Slayer, the Sync Baby, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of them, and some of which are even open source too, that take a SCART input and then run it through not only a pin conversion, but run it through a Sync Stripper that 
gets rid of all of the other information on the sync line and boosts it to TTL level sync. So I would try the cheap and easy version first, build at least one because even if it doesn't work, you're going to need that adapter at some other point if you're if you're doing what you know what you explained that you were doing. And worst comes to worst, you could either build your own or buy a circuit that has specific sync handling built into it. But I would try the the easy one first, both because it's much cheaper and because if you don't need it, that's one less of everything, one less power to worry about, you know, one less circuit that you get to deal with. So that's kind of that's kind of how I would point or the direction I would point you in for that. The only other thing you mentioned is uh, I had released the HD15 discard adapter designed by T, sold through Castlemania. And we talked about releasing the opposite. I can't remember if we open sourced it or not or, or what, but that doesn't have a receptacle SCART end that has a plug style. So that was specifically designed for things like you have a SCART switch. Uh, one of the SCART outputs is going to your scaler and the other is going to your RGB monitor. Rather than buy one of those kind of expensive cables, you could buy a very cheap or build a very cheap SCART to HD15 and then get a basic VGA to BNC cable. So while technically it would be the pin conversion you want, you would then also need uh, a different kind of adapter. So that's, that's not for you. But I'm not sure that we even open sourced that yet because I was afraid that would kind of confuse most people. Um, and depending on what you need it for, just buying a SCART to BNC cable might be cheaper and it much easier. It, I think that was really just specifically a tool for people that had uh, that had setups that would have benefited from that multi-output scenario. But uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll throw the files up there at some point, but that's not for you for this one. You would need to build your own setup um, or use one of the other open source projects for that. Russ Jackson said they recently purchased some Arduino-based input viewers for NES and SNES controllers and noticed they do not work with the 8-bit DOE wireless controller adapters. They're guessing the adapter doesn't provide any power to the receiver to make it boot up. Is there a way to wire an input viewer so that it'll power a wireless receiver, or are they stuck with using wired controllers if they want an input viewer? That's a good question. What I would look into is probe each of the pins on there with a multimeter. You don't need a scope. Basic multimeter should work. And see if it provides power on the correct pins. And if it doesn't, and you know the exact voltage, like if it's 5 volts, for example, you might be able to manually wire in a 5-volt PSU from elsewhere in order to power those receivers. You would just want to be very, very careful in checking those traces because if you're not getting 5 volts on the pin that's supposed to have it, um, then you can't just add five volts to that because what if there's a trace going back to other stuff on the Arduino board? But I, I don't know. It could also just be how it's being powered in that maybe it needs more amperage in order to pull that off. But that's kind of a tricky question that you would really want to do some digging into. And it might even be better to to contact the people you bought it from or, or talk to the people who designed the project and just ask specifically, why does wireless not work? And do they know if there's another issue? So I guess I would start with from there. And, you know, it's always good to just probe the, the pins to make sure. That way, when you're having the conversation, you could say, hey, I probed pin 
9. I'm making that up, by the way. <laughs> but probe pin 9, there's no voltage. I think it needs that for the receiver. What's up? Or I probed it and there is voltage, but the receiver still doesn't work. You know, is it an amperage issue? Does anybody know the answer? So sorry to pass this one off, but that's kind of a specific one that I wouldn't want to give any advice, especially if there's um, any kind of safety issue based on the build of that, which is, I'm not insulting the build. I'm just saying it is what it is sometimes. <laughs> Hope that came out right. Finney wanted to chime in to answer a question from the previous Q&A. The Genesis and Mega Drive console has no built-in region locks. Individual games do, not the console. And they achieve this by reading the state of the language and frequency pins. While it's theoretically possible on older Mega Drives to feed part of the system one value for the frequency pin and the other part of the system a different value, this seems unlikely to work well, so they would guess that every switchless region mod out there changes the video output when it changes the region. The ones they're familiar with certainly do. The basic problem here is that games often need to know if they're running at 50Hz or 60Hz to operate properly, and they're allowed to use the same source for that as they do for the region lock. So that's some pretty good clarity. I would think that at the very least, um, you know, if it is just a, a, a matter of jumping pins, I guess if I'm kind of oversimplifying that, I would hope that a lot of these region mods already include all of that. But overall, it's still not something I would ever consider myself an expert on. And I appreciate the clarification, but I just don't have access to enough PAL stuff to be able to really test this. So I have to rely on nice people like you who are willing to, to feed us the answers. So thank you, Finney, for some of the clarification. Um, and, you know, hopefully someday we can get some contributors on the wiki and on retro RGB that would be able to put all of this stuff in detail. Because I do know, depending on where you're located, it's really convenient to have one console that could play both Car, uh, both frequency and style and region cartridges. So hopefully we'll get some info on that eventually, but thanks for chiming in. Yrock just purchased a RetroTINK 5X and they had a question about downscaling. While it's not the main reason they ordered one, they were super excited to try it out. However, at the time they ordered one, the only CRTs they had on hand either had composite or S-video. What would be the best way to convert the HDMI from the 5X to work on those consumer CRTs? So that's a really good question, and that's something that I'm interested in as well, because I do have some HDMI to composite converters, but they're all specific downscalers meant to take 1080p or 720p and convert them to 480i. And I don't think it even knows what 240p is, and I don't know if it would work if I fed it. Um, a 240p HDMI signal, or if I did feed it that signal, would it deinterlace to 480i? And even if I tested and did all of this, are all of these adapters the same, which is most likely because they're probably using the same chips, or would more or different adapters have different results based on uh, your setup and everything else? So that's a good question. The only thing I do know is they, when I tested them when they were doing the downscaling, it did add variable about two, two and a half frames of lag. So it's certainly not something I would recommend for your average use unless you had the ability to test and you really wanted to dig into this and, and try to determine if any of these adapters work. Unfortunately, what's, what's much more likely is trying to get S-video out of it. So in order to do that, you would probably need something like uh, the LinuxBot 3000 VGA to S-Video, the same one I just talked about before. And you would need to have something like a basic 
HDMI to VGA converter. I have one that I use that's just a, a cable. Um, it doesn't even require power. Uh, depending on the setup, those work great. Some, you know, it's better to buy the, the full box, but whatever you might need, using one of those into that converter over to S-Video would do it for you. But you would need to buy the cheap DAC, which you should probably have a few of those laying around anyway if you're dealing with downscaling stuff. Um, and you would also need that converter. So uh, you could also use the one that Mike um, that Mike designed. I'll try to put links to those directly because uh, in the answer to the last question, I put the link to the post that I made. So hopefully that would be it. But basically it's much easier if you're going to either RGB SCART because um, all you would need then is uh, HDMI to VGA with the HD15 to SCART adapter, or if you were going HDMI to component video, which you said you were able to pick up another TV that had a component. So, uh, you know, that that's a very easy one. But I think the easiest way to get to S-Video would be the, the VGA version of that converter, converter chain. So it gets a little confusing with this stuff, but uh, it is at least possible. And I've messed with it before, uh, even with the Extron adapters, which I would absolutely tell everybody to get a uh, RetroTINK 5X instead of the Extron Super Emotia because they're like the same price nowadays, unless you very, very specifically needed Compositor S video because those do support those. But it's just one of those things where composite doesn't look perfect. S video looks great, but these are very expensive devices and they're kind of one use devices. Whereas the uh, RetroTINK 5X now has a million uses for it. So hopefully I was able to answer your question properly. Thank you for the very kind words and uh, also welcome to Patreon. Hopefully I could live up to your expectations of it. Richard Webster said they decided to get an Extron Crosspoint to simplify all of their input and output systems. They picked up the Ultra 88 HVA with ADSP, and having read around, they know there's some considerations regarding the output sync voltage, and they just wanted to check their understanding. Composite or component out, they don't need to worry. Correct. Same with S-Video. VGA output, they don't need to worry. Also correct. SCART output, they need to make sure there's a 470 ohm resistor on the sync line. Also correct. Uh, so basically, the way these cross points work is they process the sync. So on the input side, you always need to feed it C-Sync. So you can't use composite video or Luma S-Sync, which means with every console, just buy the cable that supports C-Sync. And for PlayStation and PlayStation 2, the only ones that don't have that option, you could either use component video with PlayStation 2, you could use component video via HD retrovision cables and the little adapter for PlayStation 1, or you could get a cable with a sync stripper in it. And that is the only time I would suggest you getting a console cable with a sync stripper in it is for this very specific, unique scenario of going into a device that absolutely requires only C-Sync. Um, so that, that's pretty much it to sum it all up. Um, on the output side, you only have to worry about SCART because of the way it processes the sync on the outside, RGB-HV, you know, also known as VGA is totally fine and unchanged. You're not using the sync output if you're using composite component or S-video. You're basically just using the RGB pins, but, you know, using them for different signals. It's only if you're going RGB-S, so standard SCART, 
And that's when the output is up to TTL level for all of the right reasons. The Extron equipment was not designed for video games, although it seems to work really well with them. So yes, that's why Rachel from Retro Access wanted to know what the custom BNC discard cable was for, and that's why you need the 470 ohm resistor on it. And the very good news is if you erred on the side of caution, if you or anybody listening said, I need to go from BNC to SCART, and I want to make sure I'm safe, so I'm going to put the 470 resistor, even though I might not need it. The worst possible thing that could happen is you don't sync. So all you would do is then remove that resistor, wire it back up directly. It's super, super easy, and that's it. So if you're wondering, I would always add it just in case. Uh, you know, Depending on the voltage level, it might not drop it too low, and even if you didn't need it, it's not going to hurt anything. So unless you absolutely know your specific uh, setup chain, so you know all of the inputs and outputs, and you know what the tolerances all are on all of them, I would always throw the resistor on the sync line when you're going BNC to SCART, just in case. Um, and, you know, it's not a cost thing either. It should be about the same price, and removing it, you're only going to lose 10 cents for a resistor if you have to throw it out. So there's no wastefulness in there, but it is kind of good practice. A couple of questions from Pilotless. First, a few weeks ago, they asked about connecting NTSC consoles in Europe, and I recommended that any console that has an external brick, you just switch over to the Triad International version of that, so you just don't have to worry. It feeds the console the correct voltage, it accepts whatever voltage you're sending it, and it comes with all those adapters, so you could use it in multiple different countries. Um, the Firebrand X webpage is still probably the best source for that to figure out which PSU and adapter goes with which console. And uh, that still stands as the best way to go about that, in my opinion. However, you brought up a good point. What about consoles with internal power supplies? And in those cases, you would need to check first check the power supply itself and then check any of the alternatives. So I've been told that there are some versions of like the Sega Saturn that'll work um, in Japan and in the U.S., I was told that there's at least one or two consoles out there that had a power power supply rev that might work globally, but generally speaking, you need to double and triple check that. And for things like the Dreamcast, there are internal power supply mods you can do that allow you to use an external universal power supply like the triads, but on the inside, you would have a more generic DC to DC converter. And each console has their own revisions out there. Uh, and each console also has kind of low-end and high-end solutions. And some of them, it's a consistency issue because you have to rely on like a Pico PSU. So you need to get one of those from a reputable seller. And it gets kind of complicated. So what I would say is tackle each one of those consoles one at a time and be prepared to open it up and double check. Check the power supply rev you have, see what uh, replacement options are out there. It should all be plug and play. I don't think you would need to solder anything. I think you could just unbolt and unplug stuff, but it's something that you're gonna wanna research each console individually and see. I'm pretty sure you're gonna need replacements on the inside or uh, a step up or step down converter on the outside, but double check just to make absolutely sure. Uh, other question, is it you or do you just not see much interest for modders to create HDMI mods for older retro consoles? Um, no, it's out there. So uh, there's already one out for the NES, although I'm not sure about av availability and if anybody else is stepping up. It's being worked on for a lot of the other older ones, but it's 
a bunch of different things are, are factors in it. First of all, a lot of them would have to require an analog to digital conversion in there as well for the video for part or some of it. And once you've done that, you're essentially just building in a scaler inside the console. And most people agree that that's kind of a waste in that why would you create a mod that's going to cost $250 or something when you could go and get a RetroTINK 5X for you know 300 bucks? So it, it's just kind of one of those things where people are concentrating their efforts where it's most needed. And on the flip side, the part shortage is killing a ton of projects that are out there because you just can't get any of these parts in bulk. You could probably still get them for three or four or five times the original price in quantities of one or two, but not in 50 or 100 or anything like that. So while I really don't think there's going to be an Atari 2600 HDMI mod, uh, it could happen, but I think for stuff that's you know, always generating the video signal in the analog domain, most people would rather just use a scaler to have all of those global options and not just focus on one thing on the inside. And of course, there's also FPGA-based stuff that's out. The Mr. Project is pretty amazing. Um, you know, the retro USB AVS is great for the NES. Um, you know, obviously there's the analog products. So there's other solutions out there that I think have dissuaded people from spending their time on internal HDMI mods. And I kind of agree in most cases, but there is still some cool stuff being worked on. We just have to wait for the part shortage to end to be able to actually experience it. So good questions, but um, it's not the happiest answer because of both the way the consoles work, part shortage and you know everything else. Juan Rodriguez said, hey, Bob, as I'm out here grilling some sirloin fajitas and drinking an ice cold Modelo Especial, I'm wondering how is the beer selection around your new place? I know you're a fan of Negro Modelo. Is good stuff more available or harder to come by than when you were in New York City? Well, first of all, I love fajitas, so I wish I was there hanging out grilling with you drinking beer. Um, but excellent question. And for anybody that's wondering why Juan is asking this, when I moved to New York City, I realized that in New York, for whatever crazy reason, liquor stores aren't allowed to sell beer. And all of the other stores around me growing up in all the places I lived, you would go to these giant liquor stores that had a huge selection of beer, wine, booze, whatever, you know, and some of them even have like cheese and snack sections as well to pair with all of that stuff. And you just don't get that in New York City. Uh, and because space is so limited, there's tons of wine stores, but there are only a few beer stores and I've never really been to any of them because they weren't anywhere near where I lived. So I was limited to whatever the bodegas had, which was mostly just the same basics that you find everywhere. And I had a Morton Williams supermarket down the street that was able to have kind of a, a pretty wide selection for New York and, you know, for such a small store in New York City. And they did have Negro Modelo and they also had one or two other darker beers. I think they had the Founders Porter and the Breakfast Ale, but Basically, that meant for fancy beer, I was limited to only what was at that store for a pretty long time, for the entire time I lived in New York City. So now that I'm back out in the burbs and I have a car and I'm able to drive to get beer, it's certainly a lot easier. Uh, one kind of funny thing is all of the stores right around me have the same exact selection of beer that that Morton Williams had. So while I'm never going to get sick of Negro Modelo, I did kind of get sick of the founders. Not because it's bad. I still like it. It's just 
it's all I was all I had when I wanted to get fancier dark beer. You know, I had my go-tos of Guinness and Negro Modelo and wanted to get a little fancy then I, I kind of only had the founders to choose from. But luckily there's a brewery not far down the street from me that I'd never heard of that's kind of on the smaller side and a friend of mine brought me there and they have two dark beers that are absolutely excellent. So, uh to answer your question, is good stuff more available or harder to come by? It's more available if you're willing to take a drive to a store that that has bigger selections and doesn't just stock up all the basics. But not only am I able to find that if I drive a little far away, you know, 20 minutes, half hour, but within that same drive is a local brewery that has great stuff. So um, maybe I'll uh, I'll pick some up this weekend or, and just show them off in the next Q&A just for anybody that's interested because I know there's quite a few beer and, and booze fans here. All the retro game only nerds are listening like, skip the beer talk. We're here for the nerds, but I'm here for all of it. I like the nerd stuff. I like beer. Uh, and everything else you want to chat about. So that's a fun question. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm finally able to get a much bigger selection of especially the darker beers. But my go-tos are always going to be Guinness and Negro Modelo. So I uh, hope you enjoyed the, the fajitas. Now, now I'm getting hungry and I want Spanish food for lunch. Robert Dickinson said, following up on a past question, they finally put together a Naomi netboot system. Their original question was whether they could 240p downscale the Naomi and run that downscaled signal through the Capcom I.O. They used a VGA to SCART to get the 480p signal into the RetroTINK 5X, and for output, a Tendac HDMI to VGA adapter into the Capcom I.O. It worked. They did not need to have the Capcom I.O.'s internal 1531kHz toggle set to 31kHz in order to have sync on their 20F1U. So they're looking forward to getting it running on the Repro Mini Cabinet. So that's great. Um, you know, I, I don't have much experience with those Naomi's, and the fact that you are able to downscale it to the correct uh, resolution for your arcade monitor is pretty cool. I would love to kind of mess with one of those, and maybe one day I could ask Beast to bring his over, and we just sit here doing a live stream, messing around with it, and try to figure out all of these things. But uh, thanks for following up on it. I just I wish I had more knowledge of some of the arcade stuff, but getting access to it is kind of a problem. And it's harder now that I'm, I'm no longer in the city. You know, pre-lockdown, I was able to always just pop over wherever I needed to a friend's house around the city and use this stuff. But, uh, you know, or some of the stores that are around there, it's just gotten a bit harder. But I'm going to keep at it because I do really enjoy messing with arcade stuff. Adam Lee said they have two adapters for their FrameMeister. They have the basic SCART pass-through adapter, and they have the SCART to FrameMeister adapter that has a sync stripper built in. And every cable they have for their consoles all output C-Sync. So they were wondering if there's any point in using the adapter with the sync separator, given all the cables already have C-Sync. And no, there is absolutely no point in using it. And also remember that whenever you're talking about analog video, every single thing that you put in the chain could potentially have a negative effect. Now, depending on the cable and depending on everything else, the negative effect might simply be an imperceptible shift in the video or, you know, or something that you'll never notice or never cause harm, but it's still there. So not only would I say don't use it, if you needed two adapters for whatever reason, I would remove the sync stripper from the other one. If you only need one adapter and everything's all plugged in, I would throw it in a drawer, 
just in case you run into a problem at some point, but you shouldn't ever need that. And those were designed to kind of fix other issues that were going on with consoles at the time. But now that we have all the knowledge of how these things output video and why there were certain problems to begin with, you don't really need any of those sync strippers at all, unless it's the specific scenarios that I talked about earlier, like if you're using an Xtron Crosspoint and a PlayStation 1. But um, nope, to answer your question, you don't need it at all. I would either throw it in a drawer or remove the sync stripper circuit, wire sync directly, and just have a second adapter. Quantum Guitar wanted to talk surround sound setups and speaker placement and all that stuff. And I'm going to give kind of a shorter answer because this is something that I could just talk about for hours on multiple podcasts. Uh, but I did want to kind of run through some of the stuff Quantum Guitar said because I agree completely in that the one thing that I could say about all of my best experiences with any surround sound system is the quality of the setup. And while probably a lot of people are going to argue with this, but if you go to Best Buy and you buy the most expensive high-end speakers or you go buy good speakers, maybe half the price, if you just throw those high-end speakers wherever you want them and hope they sound good, that lower end will sound much better if their speakers are properly placed. Where to place them, how to angle them is going to change based on the room. There's going to be limitations because not everybody has like a giant barn that they could convert into a movie theater. So, you know, there are certain tips that people say you should never do, but it all really depends on the room and the placement of the couch. So I had a couple of setups where I tried three different sound bars. I tried like the little cube wireless. And what I found for that apartment, the way the living room was set up, you know, very narrow, but long, having two bookshelf speakers pretty far apart, aimed straight ahead uh, was by far the best experience. And quantum guitar even makes the point that that's actually not the right way to do it in most setups, but it really comes down to the room. You're working around the room of it. Now, I am not an audiophile expert, but I do have many years of experience of being a crazy nerd. So I, I do feel like I have enough experience to be able to say that, but I don't have enough experience to be able to say which room should match which speakers at which angle, etc. And many times you got to just work with what you got. And even if it's not the best, you know, it's good enough. Like in New York City, I did have a surround sound system, which is hilarious because I never wanted to turn it up because I didn't want to bug the neighbors. But two speakers and bookshelves, one center channel, and then two tall bookshelves on either end of the room with the speakers all the way up on the top of the bookshelves aiming towards each other. So when I was sitting on the couch, you could hear the surround sound kind of floating over you. Now, any audiophile would, would gasp at that because that's stupid. You would never want to do it that way, but I had no other choice. And I kind of made it work. I angled the speakers right. I placed them on the bookshelves in the way where they echoed the same way on both sides. So it was even one side wasn't louder than the other. And, uh, you know, it totally worked out. So it, it's all about the room in most of these cases. And of course, you know, you have to have a good speaker. You can't buy some dollar bargain bin PC speaker, you know, and, and set it up and expect to have a really great stereo. So someday I'd love to go back and, and do a couple couple of different podcasts and interviews with audio files and really dig into this. Um, I'd especially like it if it's something that we could just go to a home theater, whether it's in mine, whether it's somebody else's and kind of go and talk about it with video. So you could still listen audio only podcasts, but you'd be able to see the different speaker placements as well if you wanted to watch it on YouTube. Um, and just kind of a fun little, um, 
uh, aside, what would a baller SNES surround sound setup look like in 1993 to play Jurassic Park and Dolby Surround? A tiny 14-inch PVM a foot away from your couch and your whole stereo system much farther away? Uh, yeah, kind of. I definitely remember going to Circuit City and trying out uh, that scene in Top Gun on their surround sound systems and, and loving it. But it would basically be that, yeah. You'd get a video production monitor and whatever was, you know, one of the best surround receivers at the time. Uh, and, you know, the speakers have been great for a long time. There's been tons of enhancements in the past couple of years. Brands like Elac have made really good sound affordable, but there were still decent speakers in the early 90s that you could really have an amazing experience with. I certainly remember all that stuff. But I'll be doing a lot more audio things in the future, um, especially with stuff like, you know, analog audio from old consoles, as well as vinyl cassettes, how that applies to retro gamers, things to look out for, like magnetically shielded speakers. I'll jump into all that stuff at another point, uh, another point in the future. But for now, I'll just leave it at that. I've had a bunch of amazing experiences with surround sound setups, building them for me, for my friends and family. And the best ones were always the ones where you can get the speakers placed perfectly for the room versus where you're sitting in that room. Two questions from Marco Vizzini. First, do I think lowering the brightness dial on the flyback transformer on a CRT will increase its longevity? Um, maybe, but you, you're going to want to set up your CRT to match your room and the lighting in your room. So if you're in a super bright room with tons of daylight, you got to crank up the brightness to be able to see it. And if you like to play in dimmer rooms like I do, you could turn the brightness down, but I don't know if turning it down on the flyback versus just using the dial would make any difference whatsoever. Obviously, you know, if you crank the brightness up, it's going to lower the life, but there's so many other factors involved that I really wouldn't worry about that. I would just not crank up the brightness for no reason. And I, and I would just have it match your room and I wouldn't really think about it past that. If, if anybody disagrees or if anybody is thinking of something that I'm not at the moment, please chime in. But Overall, I, I would really just set up your CRT for daily use and kind of just not worry about extra stuff like that. The only extra protection I ever do is I have everything plugged into multiple surge protectors and I turn them all off when I'm done. And it's not necessary, but I do that anyway. And I don't know if it's helping or it's, it's probably not hurting. I, I would be shocked to find out that was hurting, but that's the only kind of protection I give just for the heck of it. And uh, other question on consumer Trinitrons, they have the power on time in the service menu expect a, ex expressed as 000A, according to the manual, but they don't explain the letter at the end. Theirs says 046B, so is that 10,046 hours? That's a very good question, and I have no clue. If anybody out there knows how to decipher the codes in the service manual for hours used, please chime in for this one, because I'm very curious about that myself. And I do know that's an issue with BVMs and that their power on time versus their standby time is different within certain models, and I think possibly even firmware revisions, depending on the model. So... Uh, Good questions. I'm not 100% sure of the answer to either, but hey, if anybody knows, maybe you could chime in. Marcello Medini wanted to know if I knew of anybody that would be another distributor for Nemo's products, who makes a bunch of different ODEs, including one which I believe is the only one available for the 3DO. 
And no, I don't know of anybody that's going to be distributing those products. I know I've heard a lot of people express how frustrated they were trying to get theirs. I just got lucky and mine showed up in like three weeks and it was fine. And I used my personal accounts. I didn't buy it as retro RGB. So, you know, there was no, there was no special treatment there, but I've heard a lot of, a lot of horror stories from people. So, uh, no, I don't expect that they're going to be selling through anybody else. And I do understand why you would ask that. And the other question is anyone working on an alternative? And unfortunately, I don't know that anybody is either, which stinks because there is some interesting stuff on the 3DO and the drives are dying. It's, you know, it, it's kind of harder to keep those any optical drive based console running for the long run. So having an optical drive emulator would be awesome. But no, I think it's mostly just most people are kind of just out of luck with that. You have to deal with the weird ways that you have to buy them uh, and and hope they show up eventually. But hopefully somebody out there would take, you know, would take the existing designs and possibly port it over. So maybe maybe the mode will get ported to the 3DO at some point. Who knows? We'll, we'll, we'll figure that out eventually. But it's a, kind of a no on both of those. Sorry for, for the not happy answer, but I do hope that there are some available soon. Another question that just came in right as I refreshed the page before I ended the Q&A. That's funny. That's two weeks in a row. Anybody watching on video, you can see it says one minute right there. That's, that's pretty funny. But anyway, the actual question. Space Robot Arm wants to know if I have any recommendations for an external DVD drive for ripping games. They're particularly interested in backing up GameCube games, but also all other disc-based games as well. That's definitely something you'd want to Google because there are a few different websites have lists of which of the drives are best for all of those. And there are some Plextor drives that have always been known universally as awesome for that. But there's different models are better for certain things. So if you want Dreamcast ripping, that's going to be a whole other road of craziness. If you're just looking for GameCube, that I've never done that. Um, through an external drive, I'm not really sure how that would work. So that's going to kind of require some some Googling to figure that out. But the only other tip I can give you is even if the drive that's listed as good is internal only, you could just get an ex external enclosure for it or even just leave it on a desk and plug in power and then just have a, a SATA or IDE to USB adapter. So you don't necessarily need to find an external one to use it externally, but you do want to find ones that are known for being good for ripping games. So if anybody has a link to any of the most updated sites with this info, please let me know. The sites that I've always referenced are many, many years old, and I don't know if anybody's touched them since and the drives that they listed might not be current anymore. So that's why I'm, I don't want to just drop links to old sites. So hopefully people have updated info that they could share, because that's something I'm always curious about as well. I've purchased a couple of drives over the years just for that one reason. Most of them showed up DOA, but I have one beat-up drive sitting in my... Uh, that used to be in an external enclosure that I put internally in my PC here, and it's been doing great for that stuff ever since, but... Uh, yeah, I would definitely check those databases and see what's the best for each console and if there's one that you could get for all of them. Well, that's it for this week. If you're new to any of these support services and you would like to ask a question, just ask it wherever it is the latest Q&A post is in those support services. The way they all work, I can't really figure out what's a newer question on an older post, and I don't include questions from other discussions in the weekly Q&As. Also because I do kind of like just scrolling through 
single posts on each service and reading them in real time. I feel like it's pretty fun to do it that way. So any question at all you have, ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. And if for whatever reason I don't get to it, uh, the you know Patreon accidentally deleted the question, I deleted it in post, whatever else, just either re-ask next week or message me directly and uh, hopefully I'll figure out why the question fell through the cracks. But anyway, as always, thank you so much to everybody who supports in any way. Without you, none of these videos, any of the behind the scenes stuff or the website would be possible. So thank you all very much and I'll see you next week.